0: Turn your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 36. I will be reading verses 16 through 38. I am reading and I will be preaching from the new King James. Some of you already know that's the Bible I preach from. It doesn't differ greatly from the ESV if that's what you have before you today. I used to decide, well, I just figure out or find out what the Pew Bible was in any given congregation. And that's the version I would take with me, and I found out people were bringing all kinds of versions with them, so it didn't seem like it made a whole lot of difference. So, just wanted you to be aware of that. Um, But give now your undivided attention to this reading of God's holy, infallible, and inerrant word. Ezekiel 36 Starting with verse 16. And as I did last time I was here, as you know, I preached from, if you were here, preached from the book of Ezekiel, did a book sermon. I'm also going to read Jehovah, wherever you see Lord in all caps. Moreover, the word of Jehovah came to me saying, Son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, They defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them. For the blood they had shed on the land. And for their idols with which they had defiled it. So I scattered them among the nations. And they were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of Jehovah. And yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, I do not do this for your sake, O house of Israel, but for my holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the nations wherever you went. And I will sanctify my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. And the nation shall know that I am Jehovah, says the Lord God, when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a heart. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people, and I will be your God. I will deliver you from all your uncleanness. I will call for the grain. And multiply it. And bring no famine upon you. And I will multiply the fruit of your trees. And the increase of your fields. So that you need never again bear the reproach of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds which were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight. For your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this, says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded of your own ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God. On the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities... I will also enable you to dwell in the cities and the ruined and the ruin shall be rebuilt. And the desolate land shall be tilled instead of lying desolate in the sight of all who pass by. So they will say, This land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the wasted, desolate and ruined cities are now fortified And inhabited, then the nations which are left all around you shall know that I, Jehovah, have rebuilt the ruined places and planted what was desolate. I, the Lord, have spoken it, and I will do it. Thus says the Lord God. I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. I will increase their men like a flock. Like a flock offered as holy sacrifices. Like the flock at Jerusalem on its feast days. So shall the ruined cities be filled with flocks of men. Then they shall know that I am Jehovah, let's pray. Our Father, we come to you in this part of our worship to seek your abundant blessing on the proclamation of your holy word. Your word is indeed alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword we rejoice that the Holy Spirit so effectively wields that sword. Father, we desire that you would grant to us in this time of our worship a true sermon. Not a mere lesson. Lord, we do not merely need information, although we acknowledge we need information from your holy word. But Father, beyond that information, we need transformation. We have already confessed before you that we are sinners and in need of your enabling grace. Father, please, make this a time of your power. Please give us a true sermon here this morning for true preaching is that which is produced by the Spirit working within the preacher, but also that supernatural element takes place in the hearts of those who hear the proclamation. So, Father, we pray you would use this this message from your word to speak to every one of us, the preacher included. We ask this humbly. We ask this in faith and in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Several years ago, I was asked to be the preacher or the speaker at a weekend conference uh, at the OPC Church in Denver, Colorado. Well, the first message I preached was on the need to pray for revival. And after that message, one of the attendees came up to me And he challenged me by insisting that we do not need to pray for revival, that all we need to do is make good use of the available means of grace. I was shocked by that. And I didn't know what to say. Well, the man turned around, walked away. But another attendee came up to me and said, well, he's been listening to a seminary professor who teaches just exactly that. We don't need to pray for revival. All we need to do is make good use of the available means of grace. Well, I believe that we do need to make good use of the available means of grace that God's given to us. I'm sure that we're all here and we would affirm that. But what about when we see believers who are not making good use of the available means of grace should we not pray for that? And on a larger scale, should we not pray for Christ's church to make better use of the available means of grace? And I think that means we should pray for revival. Now, you may not have thought about this, but the prayer that you prayed this morning was a prayer for Revival. Look at it after the service. Now, you already know I love coming to this place. You might think that, you know, I just come here because I like to preach. Well, I do like to preach, but I love coming to a congregation where I see true worship. I see true worship. Worship that is brought about by God's Holy Spirit. So, here's the question. Should we not pray for God to revive his church? Is it scriptural for us to pray for revival? I think a lot of you already know how I'm going to answer that one. Of course, it's proper. In Psalm 119, the psalmist eight times asks the Lord to revive him. And we should certainly follow the example of the psalmist and pray for personal revival. But what about praying for God to revive his church? Well, there's an example, very good example, in Psalm 85, verses 4 through 7, where we find God's people pray for the Lord to revive them. Listen to these words. Restore us, O God of our salvation, and cause your anger toward us to cease. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? And here it is. Will you not revive us? That's a question that is actually a plea. Will you not revive us that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your mercy, Lord. Grant us your salvation. The more I think about the deplorable moral corruption of our nation and in the world, the more I recognize that the church has failed in its duty. I'm talking about overall. Occasionally, I'm homesick, sick, and of course, I'll try to tune in to a religious worship uh, service on the TV. Now, that wasn't a problem when COVID was here, because I could go to a lot of different churches that I knew were not meeting, because they were live streaming, but I'm talking about before that. I try to find a good worship service, and let me just tell you, I was generally very disappointed. I was struck by the shallow, man centered, self exalting nature of what was being presented as worship. A church that I grew up in, in Wenatchee, Washington, I was out there last year. I didn't realize how drastically it had changed. They yanked the platform that the pulpit had stood on right out of the front of the church and put a stage there. Because they had to have room for the drummer, the guitarist. And I saw a picture of the church's website where the people were... Worshiping, there's a big difference between entertainment and worship. And I just think there's some people who do not understand that. Aren't you, I don't know about you, but I'm struck when I see the marquee on a church saying, contemporary worship from such and such to such and such and traditional worship. And I'm thinking, wait a minute, has God changed between those two worship services? Let's determine what God wants. Let's determine how he desires to be worshiped. And unless we see revival in this church ter- in, in within the church God's people, those who profess to be Christians will continue to worship the Lord the way they want to rather than the way he desires to be Is it not true that we are living in a time where the church is in desperate need of revival? There was a message that was given at our recent theological conference, and I was appalled by the things that were happening within the so-called church that I didn't even know was going on. And I was appalled by it. In Ezekiel 36, verses 16 through 38, the Lord gave his people two incentives and an invitation to pray for revival. Now, I want to point out that there at the beginning of verse 16, right there in verse 16, that there the word Lord, which I translated as Jehovah, Jehovah, I'm absolutely convinced that's a reference to the second person of the Trinity. I think I've mentioned that before in previous messages about Jehovah. The manifested Jehovah of the Old Testament is none other than the second person of the Trinity. Both Charles Hodge and his son A.A. A. Hodge affirm that, and others. It's an old, old, reformed understanding. So this is Christ addressing his church through the prophet Ezekiel. And as I said, in verses 36, in chapter 36, verses 16 through 20, actually it's a little further than that, what he is giving, what Christ is giving through Ezekiel are two incentives for why his people, why Christ's people should be motivated to pray for revival. And the first incentive is the desolation of, of the nation. Listen to these words again. Verses 16 through 20. Moreover, the word of Jehovah came to me saying, son of man, when the house of Israel dwelt in their own land, they defiled it by their own ways and deeds. To me, their way was like the uncleanness of a woman in her customary impurity. Therefore, I poured out my fury upon them for the blood they had shed On the land and for their idols with which they defiled it. Notice what he says. He makes it clear that the reason why the nation was in the desolation that it was was in was because of verse 17. Their uncleanness. Notice verse 18. You see, he makes reference to their bloodshed and to their idolatry. The bloodshed refers to their violation of the second tablet of the law. Their idolatry refers to their violation of the first tablet of the law. By implication, what the Lord is charging, Christ is charging his people with, Is breaking all Ten Commandments. If someone is guilty of murder, is he going to have a problem with lying? If someone is guilty of idolatry, do you think that that person is going to have a problem with violating the Sabbath or taking the Lord's name in vain? The Lord is giving his people this understanding that they are viol- violators of the entire Decalogue. But, of course, the Lord goes on and he explains that not only was their uncleanness, their wickedness the result of the desolation That was actually more specifically brought about by the Lord's wrath. Notice there verse 18. Therefore I poured out my wrath on them. It's rather interesting in my text. I don't know how it reads in yours. But in my text where have I poured out my wrath. And then it says for the blood they had shed on the land. In the Hebrew the word poured out. And the word for shed is the same one. It makes a stronger connection between their sin and God's wrath. Now, their their desolation is described in verses 19 and 20. Listen to this. So I scattered them among the nations. They were dispersed throughout the countries. I judged them according to their ways and their deeds. When they came to the nations, wherever they went, they, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of Jehovah, and yet they have gone out of his land. So this desolation, this, this judgment, the pouring out of God's fury is described as him scattering the nations. They're scattering these, his people uh, among the nations. These nations were the instrument by which the Lord chastened his people. (coughs) It's rather interesting, though. Notice verse 19. So I scattered them among the people. Next, I judged them. Back in verse 18, I poured out my fury. The point here is these are all past tense verbs. The Lord is saying, this is what I did in the past. This is a way of encouraging God's people that there's now hope for restoration. Now, the second incentive for why Christ invites his people to pray for revival is his sovereignty. His sovereignty. And he promised that he would exercise, verses 20 to 21, he promised that he would exercise his sovereignty for his own name's sake. Listen to these words again, verses 20 and 21. When they came into the nations, wherever they went, they profaned my holy name. When they said of them, these are the people of Jehovah, and yet they have gone out of his land. But I had concern for my holy name, (coughs) which the house of Israel had profaned among the nations wherever they went. The Lord makes it abundantly clear that he's not going to act in the way that he is toward his people, primarily at least, for their sake, but because of his holy name, for his name's sake. This idea of profaning the Lord's name primarily means that the nations into which the Lord had scattered his people regarded the Lord, regarded Jehovah as insignificant. Think about this. I should also point out that in the middle of verse um 20. Well you have when when they had when they said of them, etc, it's better to understand that the word there that's been translated when is introducing an explanation. The census here is in that they said of them. in other words, how did they profane? how did his people profane? God's holy name, in that they said of them, these are the people of Jehovah, and yet they have gone out of his land. If you have a ESV with you, that's how they take it, in, in that. And that's the correct understanding. In the ancient world, when one nation conquered another nation, it was believed that the gods or gods of the conquering nation had conquered the gods or God of the conquered nation. Now what that means is that since the nations into which God's people were dispersed were conquered by Babylon, and because Babylon's God Was Marduk, it means that in the ancient world, Marduk was considered to be greater than Jehovah. It's understandable that Jehovah desired to restore his reputation through his people and to make the world know know that it is or that he is their god. So we see that in the matter of the exercise of the Lord's sovereignty the first is he said he would exercise it for his name's sake. But then he promised to exercise his sovereignty through a series of I wills. Now you may have noticed I emphasized I will as I read through that text. It was quite deliberate, I assure you. Notice that he intends for the nations to know him. Look at verse 23. I will s- sanctify my great name. Which has been profaned among the nations. Which you have profaned in their midst. and Here it is. And the nation shall know. That I am Jehovah. Says the Lord God. When I am hallowed in you before their eyes. When will the nations know who Jehovah is? When he is hallowed. By his people. The first two. Petitions in the Lord's Prayer. The first one is. Hallowed. Be your name. If you're a good Presbyterian. If you study the Sertic Catechism. You know that is the first petition. I don't know how many people think that's just an ascription. No it's a petition. We are to pray. God, to cause his people to hallow him, to treat him with reverence, with respect, and even the kind of fear that we read about in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, too. But think about this. The first petition is, Hallowed be your name. May you make your name to be holy by your people. What's the second petition? Your kingdom come. It's a prayer. May your kingdom come. Do you get the connection? The hallowing of God's name and the advancement of His kingdom. Do you get the connection back here in in Ezekiel 36? The nations will know, he says, that I am Jehovah when I am hallowed in you before their eyes. You want to know why the church is so weak today? I'm talking about overall. They don't treat God as holy. I mean, I've seen things that make me think that these people have a very flippant, flippant—I knew I'd get it right—flippant view of God. Oh, we need to pray for revival. But not only is the Lord going to exercise his sovereignty in reviving his people so that the nations would know him, look at the very last verse of the text. Verse 38, very end. This is after he's promised he's going to send revival and after he has invited his people to pray for that revival. It says, and then they shall know that I am Jehovah I frequently quote this John 17:3 which by the way John 17 was quoted in Sunday School today The Lord's definition of eternal life It's something that I don't think God's people grasp very well. The Lord said, and this is eternal life, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Have you ever considered the fact that the Lord has defined eternal life by knowing the Father and himself? What does Jesus say in John chapter 17, verse 21? Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. What the Lord is doing is he is showing in verses 24 through 36 that he would demonstrate his sovereignty by reversing the exile And the sinful conditions that caused it. And also by making the land prosperous. Listen to this again from verses 34 and following. For I will take you from among the nations. And gather you out of all countries. And bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, And you will keep my judgments and do them. We'll stop there. Notice he talks about. Cleansing with water. That's not just an Old Testament. Expression for forgiveness and spiritual renewal. That's also found in the New Testament. First Corinthians chapter six and verse eleven. And such were some of you. I think I heard this reference maybe or something awfully close to The science go. But such were some of you, that you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Titus 3 5. Not of works of righteousness which we have done, but according to your mercy. According to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration. And renewing of the Holy Spirit. It's rather interesting that back in the book of Deuteronomy, actually verse chapter 30, and this is actually one, chapter 30 30, verses 1 through 6, the Lord prophesied that his people would become so sinful that he'd have to chasten them by sending them into exile. And then he said, after he chastened them, that he would circumcise their hearts. Circumcision of the heart is an Old Testament expression for regeneration. And what's interesting here is in this text, regeneration is presented in a very, very strong idea. Because what we see here, the Lord saying he's going to do, He's describing regeneration as radical heart surgery, a heart transplant. You think anybody in the ancient world thought that was possible? Now, we don't think that much of it today, but back then, uh uh-uh, no way, no way. The Lord is letting us know that regeneration is a sovereign act of God. I've heard people describe regeneration as a miracle, and I understand that. It's better to say regeneration is supernatural. The term miracle needs to be brought into a correct definition. But this is what I really want to focus on for just a few minutes is what the Lord says in verses 31 and following. Listen to this carefully. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds which were not good. And you will loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and your abominations. Not for your sake do I do this. Says the Lord God. Let it be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your own ways. O house of Israel. Be ashamed. and confounded. This comes right after the Lord telling them. That he's going to radically regenerate them. Well. Regeneration is always rad. What is one of the great evidence of genuine conversion? Being ashamed of your sin. Being convicted of your sin. To me, if someone professes to be a Christian, and there is no evidence of the conviction of sin, I have serious doubts of that person's salvation, of that person's regeneration. One of the reasons why I'm so sensitive to this is because I made a profession of faith when I was seven years old. I think I, was, I think in my own mind, I probably was saved. I remember saying to my dad, Dad, I don't believe the Lord really saved me until I was 13 years old. Oh, no, no, son. No, you know. I sat down with you. I asked you a series of questions and you gave me all the right answers. And I said, Dad, John doesn't tell us in his first epistle, he who has the right answers has life. It's he who has the son who has life. What happened to me when I was 13 years old? Oh, the Lord showed me the ugliness of my sin. I saw it. I sensed the pollution of my sin. When I read the chapter of repentance and the standards for the first time, I said, that's what God did to me. That's what he did to me. Let me say something. If you just have a head knowledge, You have no remorse when you sin. You're in serious trouble. I can't say what your spiritual condition actually is, but I will say this. Somebody that I know, in fact, one of the elders of his church told me that this particular man has a lot of sin to confess. That session has done very little to try to bring that man to repentance. And it bothers me because I am convinced that that man is lost. But that's not how he's being treated by a session. Does this text not have application for the church today? Consider the spiritual state of Germany today where the Reformation began. PCA, the OPC, and the Evangelicals are sending missionaries to Germany now. There was a time when the nation of England was considered the most powerful missionary nation on this planet. England's in a terrible moral decline. God wants to bring you and me to the point that we realize how completely dependent we are upon him. Do you remember what he said in John chapter 15? Without me, you can do nothing. And that's why we need to pray for ourselves and for others. The sovereignty of the Lord in the matter of revival shows that mere human effort has fallen on its face in the dust. I'm not saying that there isn't human responsibility. I'm not saying that we should not endeavor by God's grace to evangelize the law. What I'm saying is, if we're not relying upon God's power in connection with that, we're wasting our time. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain to build it. I want you to notice what the Lord says at the very end of verse 36. This is like a summary statement. I will do it. It's as though all of those preceding I wills was like the Lord tapping a hammer on a nail. Tap, tap, tap. I'm hurting my knuckles. but You get the point. The last tap here is like a crescendo. And I will do it. And then look what he does. This invitation to pray for what he just said he would sovereignly do. Verse 37. Thus says the Lord God, I will also let the house of Israel inquire of me to do this for them. What? What? Oh, we don't need to pray. Look what God said he was going to do. We can just sit back and relax and watch him go to work, right? I'm afraid to say this. I'm not afraid to say it. I'll say it. I think that Calvinists tend to put so much emphasis on God's decree that they minimize the need for prayer. Do you believe that God has determined the very second that you will die? Oh, yeah. So you're going to stop eating and drinking? Oh, you're going to... Well, you don't need to, do you? I mean, if God's determined the very moment that you're going to die, what's what do we need to do to sustain life? You follow my point, I think. Some friends of ours... Back when I was the pastor of the OPC church... There in uh, the Greenville area. We had some friends that moved up from Florida. And they told us that their pastor had said to them, Oh, don't pray for the salvation of your children. God's promised to save your children. So if you pray for the salvation of children, that, that would mean that you don't really trust God. It means you're not trusting in his promise. And I said, nonsense. They found out the hard way that that pastor was wrong. One of their children is, their oldest, is in the far country. Their oldest daughter was excommunicated by her church. Thank the Lord she was restored. Listen to what Matthew Henry wrote. He wrote that God requires that his people should seek unto him. And he will incline their hearts to do it. When he is coming toward them in ways of mercy, they must pray for it. For by prayer, God is sought unto and inquired after. What is the substance of God's promises must be the substance of our prayers. By asking for the mercy promised, we must give glory to the donor express value for the gift, own our dependence, and put honor upon prayer which God has put honor upon. Christ himself must ask, and then God will give the heathen for his inheritance, must pray to the Father, then he will send the Comforter. Much more must we ask that we may receive. In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, the Lord promised concerning clothes and food. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Well, that's great. That's the Lord's promise. So I don't need to pray about food and clothes, right? No. Because what did the Lord say in what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. In, first, excuse me, in Matthew chapter 16, we read. We have Christ's promise that he would build his church and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 25, Paul said that Christ must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. Well, that's it. There's the promise of God. So we don't need to pray about the advancement of the kingdom, right? No. Because Jesus said, your kingdom come. We're to pray your kingdom come. And I could give you example after example of that. I haven't given a lot of attention to the transformation of the land when God's people would be restored. But we do understand that what's being described here is revival. Jeremy Lanfear trusted Christ for salvation when he was 33 years old and when the Lord saved him he had tremendous evangelistic zeal. He was living in New York City joined the Brick Presbyterian Church and in his spare time he was out in the streets of New York City sharing his faith with others. In the summer of 1857, a Reformed congregation, the North Dutch Church on Fulton Street, <coughs> decided to hire someone to evangelize the immigrants that were living around the church. And they hired Jeremy. He passed out invitations to church, but he saw little results. Later, he decided to have a prayer meeting for businessmen starting at noon and ending at 1 o'clock. He had a handbill hand point printed up and he invited all who are interested to come to this prayer meeting that would be on Wednesdays in the third floor meeting room at the North Dutch Church. This is for businessmen. Well, the first prayer meeting was scheduled for September 23rd, 1857. And on that day, Jeremy went up to that meeting room at noon and began to pray. Ten minutes passed, no one came. Another ten minutes passed, and no one came. At 1230, Jeremy heard the door down at the street level open and then heard footsteps coming up to that third floor meeting room. And a man entered that room, knelt down with Jeremy, and both men prayed together. Well, by one o'clock, there were six men on their knees praying. The following week, 20 attended the prayer meeting. In the first week of October, the prayer meetings were held daily, and the number grew to 40. When the fourth week came, the average in attendance was over 100. And many came under conviction and were asking how to be saved. The prayer meetings grew to the point that every room in the North Dutch church was filled with men praying. When the church ran out of room, a nearby church also opened its doors to host these prayer meetings. And so soon, many churches were opening their doors. Firehouses and police stations were hosting prayer meetings. Within six months, 10,000 businessmen were gathering for prayer daily in New York City. Other cities experienced renewed interest in prayer. In Chicago, the Metropolitan Theater was filled every day with 2,000 people praying. In Louisville, several thousands gathered for prayer each morning. 2,000 assembled for prayer daily in Cleveland. In St. Louis, churches were filled People praying. In many places, tents were set up to host prayer meetings, and the newly formed YMCA also played an important role in holding prayer meetings and spreading the revival throughout the country. In February 1858, Gordon Bennett of the New York Herald gave extensive coverage to the prayer revival and not to be outdone the new york tribune devoted an entire ish an entire issue in april of 1858 to news of this revival news traveled west by telegraph it was the first revival in which the media played an important role in spreading <clears throat> thus this small prayer meeting of jeremy lanfear on September 23rd, 1857, came it led to be known as the Third Great Awakening. It was the first revival beginning in the United States with a worldwide impact. The the revival spread to Ireland, Scotland, Wales, England, Europe, South Africa, India, Australia, and the Pacific Islands. All classes of people became interested in salvation. Backsliders returned to Christ and his church. Christians desired deeper instruction in spiritual truth. Entire families began daily devotions and entire communities underwent noticeable change in morals. Preaching, which in many places had become intellectual and lifeless, now concentrated on the truth of the gospel and also his cross. It is estimated that within two years, One million converts were added to the churches in the United States. As James Buchanan of Scotland summarized, it was a time when spiritual life was imparted to the dead and new spiritual health imparted to the living. Will you join me in praying for revival? I'm asking you to make a commitment. When I pray in my devotional time each morning, the basic pattern that I use is what we commonly call the Lord's Prayer. And when I pray and ask the Lord to cause His name to be hallowed, I am consciously praying for the Lord to revive His church with the understanding. That as a result of that, the kingdom will advance in greater breadth and depth. And at the same time, the kingdom of Satan being destroyed. Pray for God to revive his church. It does not necessarily mean that there's going to be this sudden revival. It could be something that the Lord does over a period of time. It might even in some respects be imperceivable as far as but eventually we say, hey, wait, five years ago the church was in this mess. And now it's we see improvements. We face changes. We face things coming about that suggest that God is at work within his people. Now I tell you the truth, I hope he does it suddenly. But I don't know what God's going to do. I do believe he will send revival. For his name's sake. Let's pray. Our Father, we are thankful for the promises that you made here to your Old Testament church. And Father, we realize that even in our own day, there are many who profess faith in you and in your Son who really are not yours, and they need to have a new heart and a new spirit put within them, one that will result in them loathing their sins and fleeing to Christ as the only refuge for sinners. Father, we pray that you will revive your people. We ask this in faith and in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.